Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 207 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff. And I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Man, if you joined us uh, last week or recently uh, for the first time, uh, I'm glad you're back because I am really excited about bringing you today's guest. I don't know about you, but on my um, strength finders, if you've ever done that, my number one strength, future. Um, My friends joke, I don't live in the present. I live in the future. I'm already there. And Bobby Grunwald makes a fascinating conversation. If you're curious about the future, interested in it, uh, in this episode, we talk about first mover advantage. Like this is a big idea, a big concept that I think connects a lot of the dots, at least for me personally. We talk about innovation, artificial intelligence, where technology is going, and the future church. It's a fascinating conversation. No one better to talk to about it than Bobby because he literally invented church online and the Bible app. Uh, Like, you know, he invented the Bible app, which is at over 300 million downloads. And then um, what's different between when we recorded this a few months ago uh, or, you know, earlier this summer and now when it's being broadcast is the Bible lens. He was barely able to talk about it when we filmed this interview, but now it just released. So uh, you got to check that out. It was like, it was out downloading Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter uh, when I recorded this intro extra. So it's the Bible lens and basically it takes your pictures and puts scripture on them. Really cool. Really cool. Anyway, Bobby and I talk about all kinds of things, including his pre-church days when he kind of ruled the internet in hosts and (laughs) the largest Well, I'll let him tell you, wrestling site in the world, crazy. Uh, Anyway, so fantastic episode. And man, I hope it's been a good summer for you. I know a lot of you, fall has started, which is awesome. And uh, it's been a great summer for me. I've been working on a lot of projects and we have an incredible fall ready for you. So if you haven't subscribed yet, please do so because we have some really cool bonus episodes coming up in the next few weeks and an incredible guest lineup. Max Lucado, uh, Dana Spinola, an entrepreneur CEO from Atlanta. Uh, Andy Stanley is back. Francis Chan, uh, Brady Shearer, John Gordon, Patrick Lencioni, Levi Lusco, Rachel Cruz, Daniel Pink. I mean, it's, it's just an incredible one. And then I have a really, I, I loved it, but a long interview with New York Times bestselling author Ann Voskamp. Uh, around a bunch of stuff that's really, really means a lot to me. And I asked Dan if she would consider doing the interview and she was super gracious. So that's coming uh, real soon too. So also we're getting ready for my book launch. I got a brand new book called Didn't See It Coming. If you're curious, head on over to didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. We've got actually some really good pre-order incentives that we'll be announcing soon. You can get it now. Just hang on to your receipt. You'll get them all before the book launches. And so we're excited about that. And I'm excited about helping you get better as a leader. And I want you to really rethink what you're doing for training and maybe get on board with what thousands of churches have done in terms of taking their training online. Uh, This is 2018. Uh, Life has changed, believe it or not. And if you're still trying to train your volunteers by getting them in a room, and listen, if you're gonna have dinner with them, appreciate them, please get them in a room. But if you're trying to like get safety information to them? Do you really want 60% of your volunteers trained? Because that's the average 
for most churches. It's like, yeah, we only ever get to six out of 10 volunteers. What if you could train 100% of your volunteers 100% of the time and do it by using trainedup.church? If you haven't headed over there yet, you should do so right now because they've got all kinds of upgrades. Scott uh, Magdalene, the CEO, keeps upgrading this. He and his team. One of the most requested features, custom branding, is now available. So whether you're a big church or a little church, you can slap your logo on it. And uh, yeah, you can you can customize this to the nth degree. So if you want to do 100%, no, your videos, your training, do it. If you're like, no, I don't want to, they have a library of over 800 videos ready for you. And when you head on over to trainedup.church and use the coupon code CARRY, you will get 10% off your service for life. So head on over to trainedup.church, use the coupon code C-A-R-E-Y, CARRY, you get 10% off for life. Also, uh, getting ready for something potentially very exciting. I am in the running in the mix for the pedal picker for next year's South by Southwest event in Austin. Texas. I'm, I'm really excited about that. Uh, they've approached me about potentially doing a talk for them, but you go, they have this process called Panel Picker, and I need your help. Uh, vote for me. I will set you free, so they say. Uh, head on over to panelpicker.sxsw.com, southbysouthwest.com, uh, or you can go to the show notes, click on the link there, and create a free account and vote. Uh, let people know that, yeah, that would be a fun thing. And then come hang out. Voting is only open for a few weeks. If I could have your support, it would be incredible. And now on to my interview with Bobby Grunwald. Bobby is the innovation leader at Life Church, where he's responsible for their entire digital platform, including things like Uversion, Bible Lens, the Open Network, Church Online, The Weekend Experience, IT, Creative Media, so much more. He has been voted by Fast Company as one of the top 100 most creative people in the world. And it's my privilege to bring you my conversation with Bobby Grunwald. Well, Bobby, welcome. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Feels like this has been a long time coming. Yeah, it's great to be with you, Kerry. Yeah. Hey, um, I would love to, there's there's a lot of places we're going to go in this conversation, but I would love to go back to your little known rapper and wrestling <laughs> days, all right, pre-life church. Um, talk to us about sort of that era of your life. You really, I've seen you rap. We were in New Jersey speaking at an event together and you actually, you actually laid down a rap that was pretty exciting. It must have been a tough crowd. I, only, I pull that out whenever I feel like that's the only thing I can do to get engagement, you know, sometimes. <laughs> So, not, not, or or I or I didn't have any content that way. I'm not sure what was going on that day. So, <laughs> now my uh, my rapping days, I, I actually uh, became a follower of Christ between my eighth and ninth grade year, uh, between uh, in in school, and where I grew up, my friends all listened to rap music, and so with my new excitement of being a follower of Christ, I was trying to figure out how I could connect with them or reach them, and right. uh, I thought, why not? why not start to rap? <laughs> and so I'd never <laughs> actually rapped before, uh, but I found out that I, I kind of had the ability to do it. And I wrote songs and for about five years, traveled around the country, did camps and things at churches and different events and um, lots of amazing leadership experience through that kind of leading a, a group. We traveled with as many as 15 people at times, you know, on, on some of those uh, things. But I did it for five years. And uh, yeah, I was a Christian rapper back in the day. 
And then you, if if memory serves me correct, if my research is correct, you had the biggest, is it chat room or online community in the world for wrestling fans? <laughs> Pro wrestling fans to be more specific. Pro wrestling, Not, not like actual wrestling, but... Not the, actual. Uh, this was WWE or was it still <laughs> WWF? Back or? then it was called WWF and WCW. There were two kind of primary... Uh, uh-huh. primary things that uh that had had different wrestling events so um we uh yeah it's kind of an interesting story i was i was actually a finance major in college and i planned to go into the finance field but uh ended up god provided kind of an opportunity to take more of an entrepreneurial route so i i started a web hosting company first and sold it and then one of the customers of our web hosting company was a pro wrestling website and after I sold the web hosting company, um, I got together some investors and we purchased the pro wrestling website and then grew it with the idea that we would um, sell it one day to uh, a larger company, a public company. And and so, yeah, so for about 15 months, uh, I owned the largest online community focused on pro wrestling. And it was, uh, it was an amazing experience, a lot of learning, you know, that came from it and uh, part of my journey that I had no idea at the time what God was preparing me for, you know, in doing it, but um, but but gained some really valuable insight. I was probably 20, uh, 22 years old, I think, at the time mm-hmm. I had that site. And then uh, we sold it in December of 1999. To, oh, uh, I was going to ask you timing for sale. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah wow. No, December of 1999 to a company that Goldman Sachs took public. Um, so the timing turned out to be just about as ideal as it could be for, for something like that. I think if it was about, about four months later, five months later, it would have been worth nothing. But we managed to uh, do pretty well for ourselves and the investors. I was going to say, what month was it where everything went dot bust? It's a great question. I, I, it seems like it, it was, was 2000, right? Yeah, where, it was where 2000. The I want to say it was like May. I, I can't really remember um, I should remember, but it, it was a li- it was just a few months, four four or five months after we had sold it, I believe. But I'd have to go back and and look. It's my I, I should remember that really starkly, but I think I don't remember it as well because because uh, we were out at the time and I yeah, wasn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. You you had gotten the money, the check had cleared, and uh, <laughs> and you were done. Fifteen months that I didn't know that part of the story. You didn't own it for very long. How did you scale something for sale in fifteen months? It's a good question. We had a real specific strategy and and. Um, even before we started in acquiring that website, we I put together kind of a filter with a partner of mine uh, of an online community we were trying to to purchase. We felt like there's an opportunity to buy eyeballs, you know, buy traffic on a website at a certain price, um, and then grow it, flip it to a Wall Street who was valuing it a lot much higher. And that was kind of just the va- basic premise. We'd looked at dieting websites. We'd looked at several different categories. Pro wrestling just happened to fit our our sort of filter that we had put together. And uh, because it was kind of a second tier type of content that didn't have a lot of competition and we felt like we had an opportunity to grow it. We, we scaled up our writers um, and we had contract writers that wrote articles. We built a revenue model around it, which back then you actually probably didn't need to do, but we did because we were, we were just trying to think about it in terms of business terms. We, we built uh, a lot of ad revenue up. The U.S. Army was one of our primary advertisers. We had an online game that was a subscription-based game, and uh, we syndicated our content to other channels that would pay us syndication fees for the articles and stuff that we wrote. 
And so it, and then we we great, uh, grew some affiliate sites as well, where we'd kind of take on the ad delivery for some um, smaller wrestling sites that we kind of brought under our umbrella. So through all that effort over that period of time, I think we grew from, I think it was two or three million page views per month was the metric to about 17 million page views per month uh, by the time we sold it. So it was fairly fast growth, but a lot of things were growing fast back then. I don't want to give ourselves a bunch of credit. Yeah, but that's, I mean, Bobby, that, that's, I mean, those numbers are impressive in 2018, but 20 years ago, like you didn't have nearly the number of people online that you have today. I mean, that's, and that's meteoric growth. How did you, what prepared you for that at, you said 22? What, like, this sounds like a a 15-year-old, you know, or 15 year business run for somebody in their thirties. And you did this in 15 months when you were in your early twenties. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know that I have a great question. I just, a great answer to the question. I kind of feel like God's just kind of graced me for some of these things at scale. It's just sort of a yeah. thing that, um, I, I guess I have some, some, some instincts and, and I really do feel like he's kind of guided the whole process, you know, and, and in many ways, I feel like God kind of did it. And I was along for the journey to learn more than it was me doing it. And, and, uh, and everyone else learning from me, it was sort of just felt like it was happening in, in ways I couldn't explain. Even our uh, web hosting company, we, we started in our dorm room and, uh, in about a year and a half, we had customers in 33 countries and it had grown fast as well. Um, so I, I don't say that to, to kind of take credit. I say kind of the opposite. It's almost like it doesn't have a good explanation when you think about my ability or education or background per, per se. Um, but I do feel like I was able to be witness to something that was happening and gained a tremendous amount of experience that I had no idea at the time, but actually ultimately did a better job of preparing me for what God was going to do later in ministry. Yeah, and and you know I appreciate the humility. I I get that, and yet there mu- as somebody who's fascinated with scale because I think it's a major problem that we have in the church today, and not to mention in the business world. What are two or three things when you look back on that period that you did, even intuitively, um, as a, a college dorm or you know in your college dorm room to grow that web hosting business or in the internet the wrestling site that you would say, hey, had I not done these two or three things, it never would have unfolded that way? Um, I would say um, I was hyper-focused on speed and first-mover advantage. Um, That was definitely from both of those, you know, was something that we, I say we, but I I think in both cases, I, I was sort of a real driver for how fast and how quick. Um, I also didn't, um, I didn't accept kind of traditional approaches, uh, to things, uh, almost like I, I kind of wanted to, um, almost wanted to try not doing a traditional approach because I felt mm-hmm. like traditional approaches got traditional results, meaning the way we built the web hosting company, we, you know, there were all kinds of model. I say all kinds of models. There are very few web hosting company focused companies at the time. We were probably number 20 in the world. Um, and that was, that was what I say first mover advantage. I felt like we were kind of taking, uh, taking a bit of a risk, but moving out in front of where I saw things going. Um, so that was the first mover advantage part, but then those that were doing web hosting as a side business, like an ISP that had it, they had a particular approach that they took with the types of servers they used and, um, 
and just the way they approached the business that I felt like um, we could take a sort of non-standard approach to it and have a different type of offering, different type of infrastructure, um, things that they would have probably scoffed at, you know, saying you can't use a computer like that to host a website on. Um, you know, we would just say, why not? You know, and, and hmm. because we knew if we could do it that way, our cost structure would be significantly less and our pricing point could be less. And we felt like that was a barrier, you know, to entry uh, that we could, you know, we could get the price to a point where it would have much broader adoption. Um, so, so I guess those would be two elements and those kind of carry through on both. And even on, even on in today, you know, there's sort of a hyper focus on speed, speed to market. And uh, and then, you know, trying to almost almost like a religion, you know, take the non non standard approach until I until I proved that I had to do it like everybody else. Can you explain first mover advantage? Yeah, so it's just it's basically recognizing that if you can make it to market your product, your idea before others that that there is some sometimes you know many times a disproportionate advantage that you gain by doing that so you you uh, the, the the people that make it there first the people that um, are able to grab market share quickly before others recognize that there's an opportunity um, you know that that gives you kind of an inherent momentum um, to what you're doing that's hard for others to catch up to. So in a very business competitive environment, I mean, competition is my number one strength on the strengths finder. So that's mm. part of what you know, I think drives the speed and, and you know, urgency and all the things I just talked about. But, um, but I, think that's, I think that's really what first mover advantage at the core means. It's like I, you see an opportunity and you're trying to beat everyone else to do it first. Um, and, and then, you know, that inherently gives you some advantages. I mean, you don't have others to learn from. That's the disadvantage, you know, right, to right. for advantage. But the advantage is you sometimes can get a disproportionate market share and, and hold that market share for a lot longer time. Sometimes I wonder, Bobby, if that's what happened to the format of this podcast. I was listening to interviews happening in the business space like this with a lot of people I'd never heard of. You know, I knew the uh, podcast host, but I didn't know the business person that they were interviewing. And I thought there's nothing like this in the church space. Like there were interviews, but it, it could be, you know, a staff member interviewing a lead pastor, which was basically just a way to do a talk. In other words, I gave this talk at Catalyst or at staff meeting on XYZ. Uh, here, Bobby asked me these five questions and, you know, I'll, I'll basically teach you an interview format, but not like what we're doing. And people often say, wow, how do you account for the growth of the podcast? This was the, it's hard to believe now because there's a million of them, but we were the only one, I was the only one four years ago. And, yeah. uh, and is that what you're talking about? Absolutely. That would be it. It's, it's just, it's basically giving you an opportunity to stand out before others realize that there's even an opportunity. Because it really wasn't even that innovative. It's just an this is you know a radio format brought to podcasting, long form. Yeah, innovation sometimes I found not nearly as dramatic as everyone tries to kind of make it out to be. I mean, sometimes sometimes it's just slight, you know, new, slightly new approach. You know, sometimes there's yeah. something that's just a twist, you know, on something that was growing at a certain rate, but now the twist kind of brings, you know, a whole new market into play or the, it changes the perspective of how people see it. 
And so it's not always these these dramatic shifts. So I, you know, I think what you're talking about is a, a great example of first mover advantage. You just don't have competition when you're there first, uh, oftentimes, and that gives you a chance to build momentum. And once you've got reach and once you start to build an audience around it, it's tough for someone else to just kind of come and, and recreate that overnight, especially because competition gets it, it's harder to be seen the more that become more that come out there. So you kind of have that inherited advantage of having a regular audience, having subscribers, having people that have sort of, um, you know, connected to you in a way that that and of course, the podcast work because of the subscription model as well. So yeah. you actually the more you sort of build that reoccurring, you know, uh, audience that where they don't have to come and remember you every time, have to come back to you every time it comes to them. That's obviously inherent advantage and that inherent advantage that would be ex great example of how first mover advantage could work. Where are you or are you, I don't, I don't want to presume you are, but are you seeing examples of first mover advantage happening right now in the church world where you would go, oh, Leaders who are doing acts, that may be a first mover advantage or something you're doing at Life Church with Craig. Yeah, it's it's a good question. You know, I was I was just uh, recently with um, uh, Michael Todd, who's from uh, Transformation Church in Tulsa, um, and he's a fairly new pastor, very young new pastor, and he's taken a a really specific approach to how he sees church um, that's different. Um, the reach of church, he, he kind of really invests energy and his staff do on how social media reach is reach um, and influence for their church, how butts and seats is not the measurement that they're focused on. Right. Um, and, and, and that's not that's not necessarily particularly profound, but he's one of the few that I've seen been particularly passionate from the ground up about how he sees the, the role of his church in, on these new platforms and mediums. And he's had, you know, uh, fairly meteoric, you know, growth in terms of his influence, you know, on on social media in a short period of time. And his church is actually, you know, at the same time, the butts and seats actually did grow, you know, yeah. at the same time that uh, that the church was. So he's, just, I mean, I just happened to recently connect with him, and he'd be an example of of somebody that I think um, he's not the first to social media, but he's one of the the first that I've seen really. Uh, like study, analyze it. His staff is hyper focused on it on a church level, like what what they're trying to achieve and how they're strategic about it. Uh, and um, and I don't, I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of singling them out, but I'm sure there's many other examples. But mm -hmm. he would be in a category where, in the same way that we talked about church online years ago as a church um, when we first started, we we had a bit of criticism in how we were defining church, and people were saying that's not real church and all that. Well, I find that I've been in meetings where Michael Todd's talking, and people are are kind of looking I'm like, yeah, but don't you think that there's some danger in this, and don't you right. think this will not work, and this is a problem, and there could be, uh, just like there could have been with us. But he's kind of willing to say, I'm not worried about that right now. I'm kind of focused. I'm, I'm trying to accomplish something here with the way I'm viewing it differently. And, I, and I'm not um, – it's, it's a messy thing, but I'm willing, to, I'm willing to kind of venture out on this kind of theory or this concept. And maybe before others, you know, would. Well, we'll link to him and to his church in the show notes. And I'm definitely going to drill down on him. I have a feeling I'm going to want to interview him on that. That's fascinating because – I think he's right, right? I, you know, people are people, however you reach them. And if, it, if you're limited by a building on a Sunday morning or at a set time, that's a very narrow definition of church that 
is inherently not, it doesn't have to be. Well, let's, let's move from your business career. You joined Life Church, and I know you served as a volunteer. Uh, I've interviewed you in a different format for a TV show before that I was involved with. Um, and I think that part of the story is, is, has been fairly well shared. But some of that original thinking behind your web hosting business, behind uh, your wrestling site that you bought and sold, was some of the impetus behind um, Uversion and Church Online. So let's start with Church Online and just help us sort of, that was over a decade ago now, help us recreate the thinking that you and the team at Life Church had at the time when you decided to try this thing that really few or no one had done, which is sure. we're going to do church online. Sure. So the, the real beginning of that idea was shaped when um, we had started kind of our first campus at a distance, which would have been in 2001, I believe. It was in Tulsa. Uh, I was one of the people responsible for starting the campus. And there's two of us, two leaders that were driving from Oklahoma City to Tulsa, which is about 90 miles away. And on those long, on that long, but on that hour and a half drive every weekend back and forth, we were using video teaching in Tulsa at a you know 90 miles away. And I kept thinking on the drive, if if video teaching worked to form church community as a as a mechanism to kind of start to build church community at a campus at a distance, I wonder if there's a way that we could build community online. Because if we could, that would really you know, be somewhat limitless in terms of the potential because we wouldn't have a building or be constrained by location. And I was recalling the pro wrestling experience and and thinking, you know, here we had this vibrant community of people that were engaged daily around the topic of pro wrestling. They would actually gather together in person and meet up in cities, you know, to go to events together. Um, but their whole connecting point was the technology online, and it facilitated conversation and discussion every day that, um, that I mean, very diverse set of people were, were mm-hmm. focused on, you know, around pro wrestling. I thought, surely, if that could happen and video teaching could work for a campus, I was kind of putting all these pieces together and realized that perhaps this experience I had with pro wrestling, um, you know, God might have used that to sort of lead me to the concept of doing church in an online context. And so that was 2001, maybe 2002 that I was having that kind of conversation. And then, but I felt like the technology to do that well um, wasn't quite there yet. You know, I, we didn't have broadband penetration. It was very much, much smaller percentage of the population that had access to a connectivity that could create a, a live stream. I felt like um, the it was kind of a little bit counterintuitive, but I felt like it was key to have it happen in the form of experiences or moments in time, like a shared experience versus just on demand. And there's some thinking around that, but I want—I felt like if we're going to try to form community, we need to kind of gather people together at the same time frame. And and that would be a, a key component of it, which is a little countercultural or intuitive for internet and technology. I mean, a lot of people sort of moved to the whole concept to try not to have to do that, but but that was a bit of the, the least uh, idea around it. And so you needed to have live video or at least simulated live video, something that could stream video. And so we waited um, until the technology uh, could catch up. So 2006 is when it actually launched. We felt like, um, so maybe four or five years later, when we felt like technology was out of place, like that where that made sense and we had enough um, ubiquity around is you know, broadband was more ubiquitous at the time, much more available, more common. So, 
anyway, we um, we launched it in uh, Easter of 2006. We started kind of with uh, ironically with all of the scale thinking I put you know into the potential of it. We actually started it in a in a pretty odd way and and had a mindset of it being a campus uh, and yeah. not and, and even called it the Internet Campus. And it was really interesting because we ran into scale issues that caught that were very similar to a physical campus building, meaning like our really? audience sort of capped out at about the same size that it did at a physical campus because we were we were very limited by the scope of what our team could do, the times that they were available to do it, um, and some just uh, in retrospect really dumb you know structure decisions that we made kind of at the very beginning. Uh, so, but, but that's when it started is about, I guess, 12 years ago, a little over 12 years ago now, and I've uh, learned a lot through that journey. Wow. So how did those scale issues show up and how did you navigate them? Uh, so we, we started off, I think, kind of somewhat boldly thinking that this thing was going to grow really fast and would not have very many barriers in terms of the, right. the size and scale of it. Um, but what we realized was that we had a we had an offering of services. I think we had three different services that were actually truly live, meaning everything was happening live. The message was live, the worship was live, the the campus pastor was live for those three services, and and then of course that's obviously going to limit you um, to some degree in scale because you've only got church at a certain time. So right. other countries, other time zones other regions that becomes, you know, problematic. Uh, and then um, we just had other, we were very focused on trying to recreate a lot of aspects of our campus experience. You know, we're kind of spending a lot of energy. How would we do kids and how do we do right. this? And and so we, 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 I'd say we probably wasted more energy, you know, uh, like sideways energy on things that we felt like were trying to complete it or prove that it could be a full and complete, you know, um, campus church experience, you know, like mimic what we do at a campus. Um, so once we started to reach the barriers where we just didn't see the growth happening, it felt like it was stalling out. Um, we were trying to figure out how to build more momentum. Um, just realized that that was probably what some of the barriers were. We were relying to, we couldn't grow our team, you know, from a cost perspective, we couldn't like triple or quadruple the size of the team and just start doing services day and night. We certainly couldn't, couldn't have them working 24 hours a day. Uh, so we we decided that we would uh, move off of having to be truly live, but to create a simulated live experience. The content wasn't live. Uh, it was pre-recorded and then played, though, as it was live. So if you came in five minutes late, you came in five minutes late, you know, but right. you're experiencing the same content at the same time. And then we realized we could probably with technology facilitate a small team of volunteers to kind of handle everything. And by doing that, we could build volunteer teams that we could scale. And uh, and so when we did that, we moved from those three services we started with where today we have 84 that happen pretty much day and night. We have volunteers in countries all over the world that are facilitating. There's probably, um, I'm, I'm almost certain there's one that'll at least start or is going on while someone's listening to uh, this podcast right now. 
And um, and the only reason we could scale that is that our actual staff, they don't actually lead or facilitate any of our services, our 84 services. It's all done by volunteers. They lead the volunteers and they lead, you know, the overall direction, the content, what's going into it, of it, the, the training and development, the vetting of volunteers, all those things. That's what their focus is. Um, but they're not actually sitting and moderating chat. They're not, you know, handling um, some of the the technical kind of aspects that are happening with it. That's all being done by volunteer teams. One of the things I remember from that time is a lot of experimentation as well. If you remember, uh, this got written up numerous times. I think I've visited a few times, although I never really understood it. But the uh, Second Life experience, do you remember that? Uh, oh, yeah. There was this thing in the mid-2000s where people had this virtual life that they had created. And you guys went into there for a little while, and then I trust that's no longer going on. Can you talk about some of the the, the tentacles that you put out there that you thought, I think this might work, and then what what makes you stick with something, and then what are the, the, the decision-making um, filters that you use to help you decide, sure. you know what, this was a bad idea, or this lasted for six months and we're going to kill it? So Second Life was really interesting. We we really did um, try to kind of push the limits on experimenting with what mediums and formats um, really would would work. And Second Life is like a gaming-like environment, immersive-type platform where it has a – it feels like you're playing a, a 3D video game, basically, mm-hmm. on your computer. But you have your own avatar, your own kind of character that you build – and you walk through this virtual world with this this character. So your character can look like anything. It can look like an animal. It can yeah. um, look like all sorts of things. So what was interesting, um, we learned a lot from, we had what was our own island. Um, it, it's kind of strange that it's an island, but it literally was a virtual island. They It was the way they set it up. You could buy a server and go through these costs and kind of build out your own buildings and everything you wanted to. And it was your own space kind of within their world. And, uh, and we had a, a, a really good turnout um, from what I could tell at the beginning, and, and Second Life was getting a lot of mainstream attention at the time. Um, we, we created a physical building, like, I mean, a, a physical, a, a campus-type shaped facility, so you would almost, it was almost a direct model of one of our buildings, had chairs in it, you know, it was, it was really kind of interesting experience. But we learned a few things from it. One was there's some technology challenges to scaling that um, we ran up against. Once you had 100 people in one service, um, it just came to a crawl. And mm. there's nothing that we could do to affect it because it wasn't our technology. It was the platform that they had built. Um, so that really, in, in the shortest version of the story, that really is the the main thing that caused us to ultimately abandon it because we couldn't affordably scale it to to reach a lot more people and it was just too much energy and too much resource to do for 80 or 100 people um, for what we were investing in it that's the simple answer but i will say we learned a few key things and probably one of the more notable ones is um, a lot of people are concerned about anonymity online because they feel like people are dishonest or not being true to uh, who they really are, what they are, they're misrepresenting themselves. And um, and while that's certainly possible, what was interesting about Second Life is because everybody had avatars and you couldn't see anyone's face, but they could have these conversations and dialogues behind these avatars. I found that it was really 
uh, people are really willing to go deep in their conversations about spiritual things. Um, like in a first conversation, you could Fast. kind of uh, really, because in real life, you know, we don't have physical facades. So we put up emotional facades when we talk to people. Hmm. You yes. can see me, but you can't see inside me um, because I'm pretending to, to be happy or pretending to have it all together. Um, but when I have a physical facade, in the case, this is the case of an avatar, um, I'm more willing and less protective of kind of the emotional or spiritual facade that I might have put up before. Oh, and that, that was the discovery that Second Life gave us. And it really did help bring, um, help kind of inform things in the future, at least just how we thought about technology and, and, and how it could be used to kind of maybe break down some of those, uh, those facades. Hmm. Well, uh, man, I know uh, we have a hard stop on this, so I'm just trying to make good use of the time. Let me ask you this question, you version. I love how that was an experiment that was, what, within weeks of failing? Like this was something you decided to try. So walk us through where the idea for you version came from and then how it almost failed and how you didn't shut it down. You tried it one more time. I, I just think that's a story that needs to be told on so many leadership levels. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll kind of correct your question just a little bit in that we, yeah. we really believe it did fail. Um, oh, okay. failed, and I'll kind of explain why that's important. But, uh, but the, the original idea came to me in the O'Hare airport in Chicago in October of 2006. Um, as in a long security line, I, I don't know why that was the context for the story, but that's where it was. And, I was thinking about how I could leverage technology to help me read the Bible and perhaps others as well that are similar to me where we, I was just not as engaged as I wanted to be, but I wanted to be more engaged. It just, I was struggling to figure out how to connect with it. And so there in the security line, this idea came for you version. Um, I'm an activator, told you about kind of first mover advantage or moving yeah. quick. So I actually registered the domain uversion.com in the airport that day before when I got to the gate. Um, I registered several domains. That was one of them. And uh, and that's how I know the day that I was in the airport because I can go back and look at when the domain was registered. But um, but the original idea was actually for a website. And the website was going to help you connect scripture to any kind of media, video, photo, um, blog post, any, any way that you could represent how this scripture sort of applies to your life or how you see it represented in art or in media. And then people could then see both sides of that. They could they could see the scripture from the media and the media from the scripture. And that was the original idea. Um, it launched in 2007. And there was a lot of process to that journey. It wasn't simple and a lot of things that we learned and, and didn't know when we got started. But uh, it launched in September, late September. And by December... Uh, pretty well recognized that it wasn't working. Um, my personal use of it was forced. <laughs> it was pretty much. No, I, I invented this. I better use it. Right. Yeah, I use it because I because I made it. Um, and uh, and so we're not afraid when we recognize that things aren't working to to shut them down. And and that was actually where the decision was in January. As hard as it was, because we put a lot of energy into it. Um, January of '08. January of 08. I'm sorry. January of 08. We just so how said, old was it? How many it was months? Four, or see, it would have been the very end of September. So probably October, three, three and a half months, maybe three months, three and a half months. So there's again, the speed thing. 
most churches would just let it limp along for two years and go, well, it died last year, so we should kill it this year. Okay. Yeah, so four months. No, wow. You know, got to kind of fail fast as well. So, yeah. so we, um, we basically uh, like to process why things fail, um, not to kind of beat ourselves up over it, but to learn from it. And so we uh, spend a little bit of time saying, okay, what went wrong or what did we miss on this? You know, was it just the wrong idea? Was it too early? What were some of the factors? And in that process, really discovered that one factor, a significant factor, was that we were using our computers a lot less. Like our computers were starting to become just this thing we were at only moments during the day, not all day. Um, and our Blackberries were the things that were with us all the time. And so we thought, you know, maybe the format isn't quite right. You know, it's digital, but maybe um, a more productive thing would be to, to design it so that it could work on a BlackBerry. So we, we basically stripped out the whole media component to it and just said, let's just try displaying the Bible text on a BlackBerry. And we just redesigned the website to do that. It was so simple, super basic. Blackberries back then were just a few lines of text. I mean, yeah. it was really, really, really uh, early and basic, but, um, but it worked. I mean, we knew it worked because we could tell naturally without having to force ourselves, we were actually uh, engaging with scripture in places and more frequently and consistently than we had before. And the traffic to the website was going up from people using their Blackberries. And we could see see that happening relatively quickly. And then Apple announced that they were going to make it possible to to build apps for the iPhone and create a thing called Nap Store. And so July 10th, 2008, they launched the App Store, and our Bible app was among the very first 200 apps that were available in the App Store. So I kind of skipped all the detail of how we created it and everything, but it was basically just saying, I wonder if we could be in the first group of apps, and what if the Bible could be among those. And that, and so we kind of quickly moved to, uh, to to try to build that, and uh, and that's and it, and it did make it. And the first weekend, we saw 83,000 people install the app on their iPhone, and that's kind of where the journey began. It really blew our minds. We had absolutely no idea that that's what was going to happen. Uh, but it was uh, 10 years ago and and uh, and just one of those things where the failure was how we discovered um, the right idea. And and that's why I say it really was a failure, you know, because we, we the fear of failure for most people is the fear of stopping something that's not working because that's actually the acknowledgement that it failed. If they can just kind of keep perpetuating it, keep trying, you know, they just never have to fully acknowledge that it failed. But for me, once I can acknowledge that it failed, it's easy for me to kind of move on to really understand why and to really process it. Uh, It gives me the freedom to say, okay, we're past that decision. Now let's move on to really learn from it. Um, And I think a lot of times if we just kind of don't acknowledge that or kind of keep hanging on to it, we never really fully analyze it because analyzing it would, would have to really acknowledge it. And, uh, and that's, that's the reason why I like to never, I, I don't say we almost failed. I really did feel like we did fail at first. And then from the failure learned this new approach. Who pronounced it failed dead? That, that was me. Um, yeah. the, we, I definitely, uh, I'm not saying it all rides on me or anything like that. No, but no, no. But but often the people who created are its biggest defenders. That's why I, I asked the question. I feel responsible to be the one to say that. You know, I feel like that's part of that's part of my responsibility since I brought the idea, led the vision for it. Um, 
if it was someone else trying to proclaim it dead, you're and I, I wasn't the one, you know, doing it, then you're left with that kind of dynamic that isn't probably the the healthiest. So I feel like we all dread. Yeah. I owed it to the team so that it didn't have to be that awkward conversation where everybody knew it but me, uh, or everybody was willing to say it but me. So yeah. uh, definitely the one that led that. I want to switch to the future because those stories were like a decade ago and it's what, how many million downloads now? Yeah, it's about 333 million downloads of the app. That's crazy. In something that was almost dead, reimagined, which is incredible, but think about the future. Things are changing faster than they ever are before. And when you're thinking about the cutting edge of technology today and where ministry could go, what what are you looking at right now? What's on your horizon in mid-2018? One of the things that I've, it's, it's sort of a long trend line, um, but it, it, it carries off into the future. So it's easy to, for me to kind of predict the future off of the long trend line is hmm. this humanization of technology. You know, I think we've seen in the last 20, 22 years, sort of a, an arc of our technology experience, experience becoming increasingly more human in its experience. So most recently, you or in the last 10 years, I should say, you've seen social media be an example of technology being used to connect people to people right. and, uh, and as kind of a primary focus to it. And so that's creating a more human experience with our technology, not not inhuman, not impersonal, but rather trying to connect people you know, together. And right now we're in the middle of seeing people want to use technology um, in a way that feels like it's human, even when it's not with a human. Uh, and that would be expressed through what we see happening with voice, um, whether it be Alexa or Google Home or some of those voice platforms where uh, people are able to talk to your technology and have it talk back to you with some level of personality, understand what you say and answer the questions that you're giving it. Um, we have uh, pretty much all of those devices around my house and, mm-hmm. and my kids use them every day and I use them you know, pretty much every day. And it's becoming kind of a familiar part of our experience with technology, but it's it's designed to be a more human-like you know experience. So I think the trend line points us to where the next two or three years, it's not rocket science or anything profound, um, but I do feel like we're going to see an increasing trend towards a human experience, more human experience with tech. You see that in chatbots. You see that in, um, I mean, it's 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 expressed in several different ways. AI actually at at its simplest description for a non-technical person, I would say, is the humanization of technology. It's, it's, it's creating a human experience, you know, or, or a human-like experience, I should say, you know, with our, our technology. There's obviously nuance to that, but that's a very general way, you know, of trying to help people understand it. And so I think um, we we look at that from the Bible perspective. Certainly, we have a, a Bible labs team that are trying to focus on new uses of technology and how technology can kind of connect us with scripture. We've done several things with voice and that front um, on, on some of those platforms I've even mentioned. We've also worked with computer vision and, and in fact, just uh, launching a new app um, called Bible Lens that is designed around computer vision, which it, it recognizes objects in your photos and picks the best biblical verse or best best matching verse for the objects that are in your photo. So you so can- So this act- is released or in development? It it uh, it's released. Um, 
Now, I'm saying this for your podcast because I know when your podcast is coming out. So you might want to, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll let me answer the question differently. It says, so it should be, by the way, Carrie, it should be by the time this podcast. <laughs> by the time, all goes according replaced. to plan. So computer vision. So what does that look like? I hold up my phone to the camera and what? Yeah. So let me kind of back up and I'll explain it. So we, um, it's a new app that's going to be coming out. It's called Bible Lens. And the way that it works is it allows you to take a photo. It will recognize the objects that are in that photo. And from those set of objects, it will match it to a biblical concept and then automatically give you the best verse for that photo. And it'll give you a couple of other options of verses to select from. And then it will beautifully render the verse on top of the photo and give you different renderings of the verse with different fonts and different ways that it represents it on the verse so that you are on the, on the photo so that you can then take that photo and share it on social media. But then if you want it to, we'll actually go back through your camera roll and find those moments and experiences that you've already taken photos of and help you rediscover those moments and how see how scripture connects to those everyday moments in your life. And this, in, interestingly, is actually more true to the original vision for you version than you version is in terms of really? in terms of the original idea, um, because it's. It's basically technology that helps you discover how scripture connects to your everyday life and and lets you potentially, we hope it actually changes the lens in which you look at the world around you. And as you begin to see these points of connection, now you look at the objects and the people and the places in your life a little bit differently because you've now got a scripture connection drawn, you know, to those places. And so that's the the sort of big vision for it. But um, this is coming off of a trend line for us where we've seen verse images shared at the tune of about 400,000 times a day using version currently. And, um, and we believe Bible Lens has got the potential to sort of move that into, uh, into several million a day uh, over time because it, it helps solve a problem, which is that people have photos, but they don't know how to pick scriptures to go mm. with these photos. And this is sort of helping them make those connections um, just through the way we've got that map together internally. And it does use some uh, artificial intelligence. It will use some machine learning. It, it does have some sort of, quote unquote, higher tech things that are happening behind the scenes, but it's designed for the end user to be really simple. And that's kind of the goal. I want to jump into AI more deeply and, and machine learning. But before we do that, what um, what are some other things Life Church is looking at in terms of leveraging the front edge of technology for ministry? Several things. I mean, sometimes they're really narrow and specific things for, for uses. So I don't know if I have um, a great general answer to your question. I could give you more specifics. We're, cha- we're trying to change a little bit of how our content is created and produced as far as our teaching message content. So there's a, a major sort of technology overhaul that we're just in the beginning of the process. It's going to take us about a year to kind of move through all the the facility and technology changes around it. Um, but we do hope to introduce a little bit of augmented reality um, to that in terms of how we're doing um, the actual recording of the message and some of the interaction that, that Craig does um, with his messages. That's and, cool. Can you explain the difference between augmented reality and virtual reality? Sure. Leaders. Um, so augmented reality is where you would see um, 
sort of virtual or artificial elements next to or inside of what would be a real environment. So an example would be if you had a pair of glasses on and you were looking at the room that you're in, but you saw a virtual television on the wall. It wasn't really there, but it was sort of augmented or put you know, in, into the current reality that you're in. Virtual reality is a more immersive, like everything that you're in or seeing is actually virtual. It's not real at all. So what is the AR going to look like? Like, can you, can you so, say? Yeah. So uh, some of it, we're trying to be a little bit, make a little bit more of a surprise. And, and honestly, we're going to focus on it being pretty subtle you know, to begin with. But, um, but just, I think a, a general way to say it is there'd be things that aren't actually in the room where he's teaching that would be appearing on the video that you're seeing. And they're not done after the fact, you know, it's done in real time. So while he's talking, there could be a virtual element that he's talking to that's not really on the stage in front of him, but all the people watching are seeing that element um, there. And no matter which camera angle you come from or look at, you're seeing the side of it, the front of it, the back of it, you know, it, it's and, and the cameras are moving, it it all stays and, and looks like it's a real thing that's sitting there. It's nothing that you haven't seen if you watch any sports programs on TV yeah. or... Those lines on the field would be the yeah, simplest example, right? Those would be, you know, very practical examples, you know, of it that people are familiar with. Um, but I haven't necessarily seen it done in a, in a church context. Um, I'm not proclaiming it's innovative because it's not necessarily new to and new as in really new, but it would be new, a new approach for us to take as a church to the content to try to bring a little bit of a different kind of engagement. Um, so I don't want to oversell it because. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still, yeah, but that's pretty cool. I mean, you're going to have Tupac basically on stage with uh... <laughs> We'll Craig. see. We're gonna we're gonna take take some make some attempts and see what comes from it. But hopefully the technology works because as of right now it's not even installed and we haven't even uh, it's just in process of being purchased and we have a plan that we're uh, we're starting to execute right now. So let's talk about AI in the future. I mean, this is something I'm diving more and more into just out of curiosity. And there are visions of a dystopian future. You know, we're, I mean, this has been around since Frankenstein and probably even before that, where what we created takes over, et cetera. But talk about AI and uh, leverage points for the church and where you see all this going. It's a good question. I'm definitely not an expert. Uh, I get questions about AI, so maybe I should learn to be a bit of a bigger expert on it. <laughs> Um, I will say that that I'm not. I've never had a personality that that runs to the dystopian or the utopian, you know, uh, corners, you know, of it. Right. I kind of stay away from the extremes because I feel like history has hopefully taught us several lessons by now about how culture integrates technology. Um, you can see it from the invention of the telephone um, to VCRs to even the internet. You know, the the sort of extreme. Um, corners that everyone wildly predicts are going to happen when a new in, a technology is introduced um, don't happen, you know, or at least if they do happen, they're, they're very moderate and, uh, and, and more edge case and not sort of where, you know, society goes. And so because of that history, I just am not, not willing to kind of go to that dystopian view that, that the computers are going to take over the world and they're going to attack the humans and we're all going to die. Um, as a result of something that gets created. And and I know that there are people that uh, that say don't laugh at that, you know, because, you know, that's a real reality and it's inevitable. I mean, I know there's definitely some really strong opinions, you know, on it. Yeah, and very well-held opinions on both sides of that, like highly educated people. I'm not not trying to be dismissive of it, more just trying to to say that my my personal point of view and my 
historical point of view as it relates to new technologies doesn't ever land me in those corners. And I, I, I have more skepticism because of, of how history has played out and how those points of view have been pretty consistent for almost any new thing that's been that's come out that's sure. significant. So my paired, my futurist hat, you know, doesn't see that as a scenario. I do think that there's some messiness that could come and the messiness could have a lot of destruction that comes along with it. You know, it doesn't, um, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be careful or mindful of how these technologies get used. I do have a little bit of concern with, with the efforts that people have already started to make to try to use AI to form a religion, uh, use AI to, to shape a God. Um, you know, but if I step back away from it, from, from the vocabulary of it, you know, it's, it's probably actually not too different than what people already do. Just don't put the words to it. You know, we, we make the technologies and tools that we use deities in terms of how we view their significance, their importance or how they work. We just don't, the AI presents an opportunity to have a real, real unique vocabulary set, you know, around what that means. You know, I've created mm -hmm a a thinking you know entity that now is a god or now is a deity how how we treat that or how we interact with it i think is um probably some of the same pitfalls that people have today with other types of idols you know other yeah, things genesis they, 32 the yeah path, so right so so I, I kind of i view it sort of more of the same core issues that humans deal with all the time maybe a different expression of them you know is what i think the future will yield with it um so so Again, you know, I'm not on the technology front of it. I think in the short term, the emphasis is going to be just humanizing our experience. That will be um, the the soft way that sort of AI works itself, you know, into our culture. It'll just be people feeling like I actually don't mind the fact that it sounds like a person or it talks to me like a person. In fact, I want it to be more accurately a person, you know, instead of um, obviously a computer. And uh, and I think that's that's how to express itself. The more the 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 more danger zones of where people are predicting AI is going to go. Again, I I just don't know enough about it to really speak yeah. confidently about where where the tech is. Um, but I, I I do I do uh, moderate a, a bit the uh, the extremes in terms of how people see it. Well, in our sort of last question, and I have a feeling there'll be a part two where we come back and explore this in much, much, much greater detail. Uh, but just looking ahead at the next couple of years, the foreseeable window, two, three, four years, when you think about the church in America, the church around the world, where do you think AI and even machine learning will start to show up or should start to show up? in the lives of many ministry leaders? It's a good question. Um, I think a, a two to three year horizon is, is, it seems like a long time in the tech space, but I'm not exactly sure that it is a long time in how church culture mm. changes. Yeah, uh, that's true. So, so I, I, I kind of feel like the realist in me says that probably in that time frame, not a lot, you know, is going to change uh, in terms of how it really impacts. I do think the platforms that are being developed that leverage AI and use AI churches would be, I think, pretty silly if they weren't even today. So what would an example be? Like your database or, or your social feed or what? No, um, more of the platforms. Uh, I'd say like the voice platforms I mentioned, Alexa, mm -hmm. Google Home, I think are places that churches um, should be at a minimum looking to distribute their content, but at a maximum look at 
ways that you could make, uh, for example, small group curriculum interaction could easily be built on those platforms today, may already be being built by some, you know, where you you basically take content and then ask questions and then um, and then make it an actual interactive platform to facilitate discussion, you know, where the, hmm. the um, voice platform is the facilitator, you know, of the discussion. So Alexa is your small group leader. It could be. Alexa is your small group leader and you could, uh, if you wanted to create a somewhat consistent way, those things are facilitated, you know, through, um, through that type of a platform. So it's just an example, but I think you could go to the kids and children's, you know, ministry, I think would be, cause I, I, my children have really taken to those platforms, you know, well, ironically, um, they're intentionally not built for children. I think just because of the different laws that people right. are try, trying to navigate, but children are clearly, uh, uh, the people that like to adopt the platforms, they love talking to it. And so I would think if I was building children's curriculum or I was wanting to kind of find a way to take what was happening on a weekend and extend it out into the rest of the week, that I'd be looking at how to leverage some of those platforms for that that content. So, um, so that would be probably in a practical level, real level, things that I could see easily being introduced, you know, in the next year or two or three, you know, as far as the church is concerned. There's a lot that um, is happening. And I mean, some larger churches are doing this. I'm sure it'll be a little more accessible um, for smaller ones as well. And that is leveraging uh, not just your database, but leveraging other databases to try to be a bit more predictive in your communication, a bit more uh, intelligent in terms of how you're messaging people, the the mechanisms that you use to be smart about your communication. Uh, I, I feel like it's still... It's, it's accessible for some, but probably it probably feels inaccessible for most as far as pastors and church leaders are concerned. But I do think two to three year horizon, that's very possible. The counter trend to that that is uh, that that could slow that down is um, just an emphasis on privacy of data. Some of the um, the the kind of bad uh, news and headlines that have come out in those spaces. I think the church needs to be pretty careful. Um, it's got such a high trust level with its uh, community that um, it just, I, I think we should be careful not to be tarnished kind of in the midst of how uh, how prote- unprotective or protective we are with data, uh, meaning that we should, uh, should take that pretty seriously, that people are growing, have growing concerns over how Facebook and others might use their data or have used their data. Um, that I don't think the church wants to be in the center of that argument um, on on the on the, the wrong side of it, I guess. And so that would be a counter trend to maybe some of the way those things are being used right now, and that could slow the adoption of it, uh, depending upon where kind of culture goes with it. Well, and leaders, if you want to know about the Internet of Things, just follow Bobby on Instagram and watch his Insta stories as robots mow his lawn, which is like one of my favorite stories these days. We have a lot of fun with that, Bobby. Uh, there will be a part two, if you're willing. This has been sure. fantastic. Thank you for your uh, generous amount of time today. I, I just feel like I'm excited about the future. Oh, thank you so much, Carrie. And and I will keep uh, posting videos and pictures of those robots on my Instagram feed. It is it's among the more popular posts that I have, but robots <laughs> up in my yard. So it's at Bobby G. Wald if people want to go and see it. But thank you so much for the opportunity. I'll definitely be willing to come back. Great. Thank you so much, Bobby. Thanks. Take care. Well, you probably want to head over to the show notes after that, don't you? You can find everything at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 207. 
yeah, can you believe we're that far along now? Or if you're wondering, just Google my name or an approximation of it and Bobby Grunwald or head over to Lead Like Never Before. You'll find everything there. Um, man, next week we are back with a fresh episode. Let me give you a little excerpt from it because we are sitting down with Dana Spinola. The name may be new to you, but she is, she's got a fascinating story. The conversations about following your dreams, scaling a business, coming back after burnout, and even finding faith in the middle of your entrepreneurial journey. Here's an excerpt. Moving outside of my mission, Free Fabric, what we're supposed to do is just clothe the women. We were going to give them jobs at the thrift store. And, you know, we were spending most of our time trying to figure out where these women would sleep at night and driving them around and loving on them. But it changed our entire mission, spending money on electricity and a new store. And it, what it does is it dilutes what you're supposed to be doing. So when you look through your expenses, which ones are vital to your mission? And, you know, I, I had a conversation earlier today about this. Um, you know, we're going to create these postcards with a statement on them that makes a lot of sense for a free fabric, mail them out to all of our customers. You get down to the bottom line, you're like, no, we could serve. What could, who, who could we serve with that money? So you have to figure out, does it go directly back into your mission or not? One of my favorite pieces of trivia about Dana, when she was asked at age five what she wanted to be, her answer was the best. Isn't that great? So that's next week. Again, subscribers, you get it for free. Remember, we are now on Spotify. If you love Spotify, you'll find us there. Also, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And hey, if you're still training your volunteers the old-fashioned way, head on over to trainedup.church. Use the coupon code CARRY on checkout. Get 10% off for life and uh, get with 2018. It would be a good thing for you and for your volunteers. Uh, and if you are in the mood to give a little love my way, head on over to the show notes, click on the link for South by Southwest. Uh, we have been talking about me possibly presenting a talk at South by Southwest. Uh, the way they do it is, yeah, there's a judging panel, but there's also an opportunity for an audience to vote. So you can go to the show notes, click on that link. If you want to go direct, it's panel picker dot sxsw.com yes the south by southwest create a free account search for me and uh, place your vote i would so appreciate that you guys are the best if this episode has meant something to you could you share it with someone else leave a rating or review on itunes and uh, how about this we'll come back next tuesday with a fresh episode thanks so much for listening and i hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.